Well, I used to work at a college, and down the center of campus, there was this big pathway that connected all the major buildings, and it was paved with these large brick pavers. And my family, we would hang out there all the time on campus, and I remember one day we were walking to the cafeteria for dinner, and my daughter, who was about three or four years old at the time, was walking along the path, and she was jumping from brick to brick to brick. And she'd get to one brick, and she'd look, and she'd pick out another brick, and she would jump over to that one, try to land right on it. And after a while, I said, Annalise, what, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm trying to land on the right ones because I'm following a secret path. And if I don't get the right ones, we're not going to make it. <laughs> like, really? Like, I, I don't know what she expected to happen if she landed on the wrong brick, but I'm thankful she was very careful for all of our sake. We got to the cafeteria and we walked in and I remember thinking, looking at all these 18 to 22 year olds getting their food, I wonder how many of them feel like her. Uh, they've got all these life decisions looming before them, you know, what should I study? Uh, what kind of job should I pursue? Who should I date this person? Who should I marry? And these big life decisions uh, just feel so weighty. They're just hanging over them. And they're thinking, I, I, gotta, I gotta find the right path. I, I gotta step on the right thing. And, and if I don't, we might not make it where we're going. You ever feel that way? Those big pivot point life decisions, sometimes it just feels overwhelming. Uh, what am I gonna do in this circumstance? And if you're a follower of Jesus, there's the added pressure if you say, I, I wanna make decisions that are in the will of God. I wanna do what God wants me to do. And, and, and so it can be a lot of weight. So we agonize over those kinds of choices. But here's what I wonder. What if that isn't the whole story? What if some of these big major life decisions aren't quite as important as we think they are. Uh, we are currently in a series called Turn by Turn. This is the last week of the series, and we've been talking about God's guidance, God's ways of uh, guiding us in the decisions that we make in life. We've been talking about how God guides us through his word, the Bible. We've been talking about how he guides us through the advice of wise people, how he guides us through the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And the reason we're talking about this is because we believe uh, God is the one who made us, who loves us more than anybody ever could. And, and there's no one that we would rather have uh, be the one guide us in our decisions because he knows the right path to go on. Uh, but here's the thing. When we are making decisions, it can be easy to fixate on certain decisions that we feel are really, really important and overlook other kinds of decisions that maybe God cares a whole lot about but we're not paying attention to. So what we want to ask today is what kinds of decisions matter the most? To help us explore this question, I want us to look at a passage in the New Testament letter of Romans. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me to chapter 12. The New Testament starts with five big history books, uh, four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, and then a history of the early church, which is Acts. Uh, Romans is the first book right after those big history books. It is the longest and the most famous of the letters by the Apostle Paul. Uh, and I don't know if you can pick the most important book in the Bible, uh, but if you can, there's a whole lot of people who'd want to say Romans is right up there. Uh, it is just packed. And it is uh, basically impossible to uh, summarize it in a short amount of time, but I'm going to try right now, okay? Uh, the way it works is this. The first 11 chapters of this book, uh, Paul is talking about the way God has shown mercy to people like you and me, to sinners who do not deserve it. It talks about all the things that God has done for us, how, how God forgives us when we rebel, how he frees us from being enslaved to self-destructive desires, how he, he adopts us into his family, how he unites us with him, how he gives us his spirit to transform us, how he promises to raise us from the dead and renew the entire world when he returns. 
It talks about all these things that God does. And the big idea is this. God does all of these things, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but simply because he is merciful. He is gracious and kind. So Paul spends 11 chapters uh, talking about all of this. And then when we finally get to the 12th chapter, he asks the question, so what? How do we live in light of that? What difference does it make? Uh, And we are going to look at just the first two verses where he starts to answer this question. And what we'll see here, I think, will help us figure out what kinds of decisions actually matter the most. So let's read together in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what decisions matter the most in life? Well, here's the first set of decisions I would suggest to you. It is our everyday non-decisions. Our everyday non-decisions. Look back at verse 1 because it says something kind of strange here. It says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And it's like, what in the world's going on there? Offer my body as a sacrifice? Like the longer you think about it, the weirder it gets. Uh, Because we don't do sacrifices in our culture. Uh, It's kind of an odd thing for us. Uh, Although we're kind of the anomaly. In other world cultures, in other times and places, uh, sacrifices have been a normal everyday part of life. Uh, It would take longer than I have to unpack the nuances of sacrifice, but I can give you the big idea uh, fairly simply. A sacrifice is a gift. It's a present. You take something valuable, something you have invested time and resources in, and you offer it as a present, as a gift to God. So in the case of the Old Testament, the typical sacrifice would be some kind of food or drink, usually an animal, but maybe some grain or some oil or some wine. And you would give them, you would bring them to the temple and give them as a symbolic gift to God. Now, here's the thing. Uh, God doesn't need our food. Like, he doesn't need food at all. He doesn't need anything. Uh, But that's not really the point. Uh, God doesn't need a a bowl or a goat any more than I need some crayons scribbled on paper. Uh, But when my kids hand that to me, it is precious. Uh, I put it up on the fridge. I I look at it. I show it to my wife. It's wonderful. Like most gifts, the point of the gift is not the gift itself. It's not the actual object. It's what it means about the relationship. So if someone offers you a, a box of chocolates... It might mean, thank you. Thanks for helping me with that project we worked on together. Or it might mean, I'm sorry. Uh, That last time we talked, uh, I I said some horrible things, and I want you to forgive me. It it might mean, I love you. I I, I value our relationship, and I want us to grow closer. Or it might just mean they made a New Year's resolution, and you are the lucky recipient of their sugar, you know? (laughs) In the Old Testament, sacrifices meant the same sorts of things. There are lots of different kinds of sacrifices, but they basically boil down to this. They said either thank you, I love you, or I'm sorry, please forgive me. And in this verse, what Paul is talking about is the kind of thank you or I love you sacrifices. Uh, Because he knows that Jesus has already offered the I'm sorry sacrifice. Uh, The sacrifice that earns forgiveness for our sins is Jesus' death on the cross. And so in response to that, we can offer ourselves as a sacrifice to say thank you, I love you in response to God. But what does it mean when he says, offer your body as a sacrifice? Uh, That is basically a way for Paul to say, offer your whole self 
to God. It's sort of like saying, I poured my blood, sweat, and tears into this project. Uh, You aren't literally talking about bodily fluids, hopefully. Uh, You're saying, I gave it everything that I have. It's all of me. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take all that we have and all that we are and offer them to God. This is our true and proper worship. Here's the interesting thing about this. Uh, It used to be that if you wanted to offer worship to God, if you wanted to bring a sacrifice to God, you had to go to a particular place at a particular time. Uh, You had to go to the temple in Jerusalem and, and, and bring your gift. That was where true worship happened. But ever since Jesus arrived, he's kind of busted that open. And now we can have access to God anywhere and everywhere. Uh, At home, at work, in public, in private. It does not matter where you are. You have access to God. And and so we can offer up our whole lives as worship. Uh, Worship is not just what we do here for 90 minutes on a weekend. It's not just what you do in private when you spend some time with God. That's worship. But it's more than that. We are supposed to be living sacrifices. Our entire life is an expression of worship. You can think about it this way. Uh, Throughout your your day-to-day life, you are making little decisions, taking little actions. And each one of those decisions says, I love you. You might not realize that, but it says, I love you. Uh, It might say, I love you to God. It might say, I love you to a person. Or it might say, I love you money. Or I love you, my reputation. Or I love you, control. I love you, comfort. Uh, Your actions, your little decisions are saying again and again what you value, what you pursue, what you want, what you love. It's saying I love you to something. And and what Paul is saying is you should use every single moment, every single little decision, every action to say I love you to God. That's what offering up your body as a living sacrifice means. And, And here's what that means for our decision making. It means that God doesn't just care about the big life decisions. He also cares about the teeny tiny everyday non-decisions. The the things that we do without even realizing it. They matter to God and they shape our lives in some pretty profound ways. Uh, Listen to what Jerry Sitzer says about this. He says, we usually focus our attention on what appears to be the important decisions, which might not be as important as we think. For example, we think long and hard when we choose a college, a job, a career, or a spouse. This makes good sense, considering how consequential these choices are. But we give little thought to how much TV we watch, or how often we talk on the phone, or how seldom we praise our children. Yet the little choices we make every day often have a cumulative effect far exceeding the significance of the big choices we occasionally have to make. I mean, think about those big choices. You know, you, you pick a job and you make a great choice. It's a good job. You know what's going to make or break that job experience? How you treat your coworkers. How you talk about your boss behind your back. Uh, how you handle interruptions in your workflow. Uh, you can agonize over what you're going to do after high school. You know, maybe you, you choose to go to college, but you know what's going to uh, shape your college experience? Your study habits, how you relate to your roommate. You can choose the perfect person to marry. You can get that big decision right, but you can still make your marriage miserable with the tone of your voice, the roll of your eyes, and the steady drip, drip, drip of critical comments day after day. It's the accumulation of these small choices that really matter. But here's the thing about those kind of choices. They're not really choices, are they? 
Like when my kids wake up for the 12th time and they come and say, tuck me in again. I, I don't go through the whole decision-making process we've been talking about. I don't open up the Bible and say, well, what does God say about parenting? And I call up a wise friend, what would you do in this situation? And, and pray for the Holy Spirit to guide me. I, I just respond in the moment. I'm gonna either yell at them or be tender with them or instruct them in some way, but it's just gonna happen. It's gonna pop out of me. And isn't that how most of our decisions are? I mean, when I go through the day, I have like, uh, like a handful of golden moments during my day where I think for like half a second longer before having the words come out of my mouth, okay? Uh, sometimes, if I'm, if I'm lucky, I'll make a decision or do something in the moment and realize it was a dumb one later, and I'll go back and fix it. But for every one of those, there are a hundred, maybe a thousand other decisions I make without even knowing it. That we are not like the Ents in Lord of the Rings, those tree people who make every decision slowly. Like we just don't do that. We couldn't live life. We don't deliberate about every decision. So where do the decisions come from? Well, they come from our character. They come from our heart, the deeply ingrained habits and attitudes that we have. This is what Jesus means when he says, a good tree produces good fruit. And a bad tree produces bad fruit. Uh, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. Uh, what you do without thinking says who you really are. This is why Paul says in verse 2, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If, it, if our everyday non-decisions matter to God, then there is a second set of decisions that matter even more. And those are the decisions about what we let form us. Decisions about what we let form us? I actually think this is one of the most fundamental questions a person can ask in their life. What is forming you? Uh, what is shaping who you are becoming? We often don't ask that, but we really should. You might not realize this, but God is far more concerned about the kind of person you become than having you accomplish certain kinds of tasks in your life. Uh, there's a New York Times columnist, David Brooks, and he talks about uh, we can live either for our resume or for our eulogy. If you've ever hired someone, you know how important a resume can be. It can tell you a lot about a person and their experiences and their skills, but there's something a resume cannot do. It cannot actually tell you what that person is like. Uh, what is it like to work with them day in and day out, to be friends with them, to interact with them? Uh, I've been at some funerals uh, of people who had really impressive resumes, uh, people that just did amazing things in their life. But when their friends and family got up to talk about them, you know what they talked about? They talked about what it was like to live with them and the inside jokes and the encouraging comments and how they handled hard times. They talked about the person's character. And if one of them had gotten up and had read off their resume or at least just listed their accomplishments, it might be appropriate, but it would kind of ring hollow. It would be incomplete. It's not what really matters at the end of the day. I actually think God cares more about us living for our eulogy than for our resume. God's will for your life is not that you rack up an impressive list of holy accomplishments that you did for him. God's will for your life is that you become like Jesus. Think about this. You were made in the image of God. You, uniquely you, with your personalities, your skills, your gifts, you were made to reflect a little bit of God's glory into the world. And so what God wants for you is that you become a person who can do that more and more so that his beauty and his love and his grace can come flowing out in your life. He cares a lot more about who you become than what you accomplish. So if that's the case, then the decisions about what shape who we are matter a lot. But, but how does it happen? How are we shaped and formed? 
Uh, well, a couple of weeks ago, I, when that first big snowfall of the year uh, came through, I took my daughter sledding. And uh, we were actually, it was great. We were the first people on the hill. You know, don't you love that moment when it's just fresh, unadulterated snow, so beautiful. Uh, so we climb up to the hill and my daughter gets ready to go. She goes, three, two, one, and oof. She goes like two feet down the hill, gets stuck in the snow. She climbs back up. Three, two, one, oof. A little bit further, maybe halfway down the hill. Gets back up again, does it one more time. And this time she gets to the bottom, but she's gonna kind of like scoot the last 10, 10 feet, you know? Five, six times down the hill, though, it's getting slick. That groove is fast. And before long, it's actually easier to go in the groove than to not go in the groove. She tried to go at a different angle, but she got caught by that groove and went to the same exact spot at the bottom of the hill. This is how formation works in our lives. The things that we do over and over again, the things we experience over and over again, they shape us so that certain behaviors become more natural and easy for us to do. You ever notice that you've got certain patterns in your life where you're in certain kinds of situations and you always respond the same way, Uh, maybe even if you didn't want to respond that way. You know, whenever I talk to this person, I get a sarcastic edge in my voice. Or or I always respond defensively when these kinds of topics come up. Or uh, whenever I have to do this kind of task, I always end up procrastinating. Well, it's probably because you've been responding the same way so long that it's easier to respond that way rather than another way. This is what we mean when we talk about our character. It's the default mode of how we respond to the world without even trying. It's those ruts in the snow that get deeper and deeper. And when it comes to our character, there are certain kinds of experiences that shape us the most. Uh, And I think they've got three qualities in common. It's this. They are repetitive, they are engaging, and they are relational. Repetitive, engaging, and relational. Uh, They're repetitive. You do them over and over again. They're part of your daily, weekly routine. They are engaging. They draw you in. They make you think. They they stimulate your emotions or your imagination. They they, they stimulate your body, your senses. And they are relational. They involve significant people and connections in your life. You are far more influenced by people you care about than by strangers. And and so if an experience has two or three of these factors, it's going to shape you more deeply. Uh, And that's why Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because he knows something is going to shape you. Uh, There are going to be things you do repetitively. There are going to be things that engage you. There are going to be relationships that matter in your life. There is no way to not be formed by something. So Paul says, you got to choose. Either the world is going to press you into its mold, or you're going to make a deliberate choice to renew your mind and be shaped by something different. You will be formed by something. So here's the challenge. Have you ever looked at your life and taking an honest look and said, what is actually forming me? Uh, when I'm mentoring someone, I often have them do something I call a formational audit. Uh, it's like a, a food journal or a time audit. Uh, you take a week of your life and you say, okay, uh, what things do I do that are repetitive, engaging, or relational? And at the end of each day, you take just a, a few minutes to write those things down and observe what's going on. Uh, so I might write down, you know, I watched an hour of TV before bed each night this week. You know, that's a, a repetitive activity and it's engaging of your, your senses. Uh, or I could say, I talked with Todd at lunch each day this week. That's repetitive and it's relational, but you'd have to ask Todd if it was engaging. I don't know. Uh, I got in an argument with my wife. That, that's engaging. There's emotion involved and it's relational. She really matters to me. Uh, hopefully it's not repetitive, but uh, when you see those things, you start to see the patterns. And after you do that, you can look at that list of things that are shaping you and you say, okay, if this keeps happening, 
Say, say, put it on fast forward for five years. If this keeps happening, what kind of person will this turn me into? How will it shape me? Will I become more compassionate? Will I become more lazy? Will I be more flexible or more rigid? Will I be more humble? What am I going to become if this keeps happening in my life? Those sledding paths that are being formed. You might actually want to do this as a community group or with some people in your life that you really trust. It's a great group activity to say, how are we actually being formed? Once you've done that, though, you should ask the question, what should be forming me? What should be forming me? Because if you don't ask the question, you are going to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Uh, but if you want to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, uh, you've got you, you to do this. You, you have to be shaped uh, deeply by the truth uh, about the world from God's perspective so that it gets ingrained in you so that doing what God wants you to do becomes natural and instinctive. How does that get worked into you? Well, the same way as before, by doing repetitive, engaging, relational things that form you in the right direction. We actually have a name for those sorts of things. They're called spiritual disciplines. Uh, Spiritual disciplines are things like prayer and worship, uh, studying and meditating on scripture, uh, giving of your resources, confessing your sin, uh, fasting, all these sorts of things. Uh, They are basically a workout routine for your soul. Uh, Just like running on the treadmill or lifting weights, if you make them a regular part of your routine, they will shape you over time in good ways. And in my mind, they are one of the key things that is overlooked uh, for the spiritual life. It, It is so easy. So easy to hear, say, a sermon on joy and say, you know what? I'm going to choose to be more joyful. Uh, But in in an hour, you are going to be sliding down that same sledding rut in the same way. You're going to be grumbling and complaining just as before. The decision to be joyful is not going to make a difference. But you know what decision will? Saying, all right, for the next month, every night before I go to bed, I'm going to write down five things that I'm thankful for, and I'm going to thank God for those things. You might not be able to choose to be joyful, but you can choose to practice the discipline of thankfulness and it will turn you into a joyful person. That's how this works. So this is what I recommend that you do, especially at the start of a new year like this. Ask yourself, what are you gonna let form you over 2017? What factors in my life are forming me in the wrong way and I'm gonna cut those things out? People I need to spend less time with, routines that need to change. And what practices, what spiritual disciplines am I gonna make a regular daily, weekly part of my life? Uh, This is actually a great way to think about what we do here at Christ Community Church. Uh, One of the ways we think about the the programming that we offer and the things that we do is we say, what's going to form someone to be more like Jesus if they do this again and again? And and so when we make announcements and tell you to do these sorts of things, we're basically saying, here are some options of great spiritual disciplines to do. Uh, Some of the the big ones that we push are things like weekly worship, uh, community groups, serving, uh, getting into the Bible through the Bible Savvy or the Epic Journals. And here's the reason we do those. Those are spiritual disciplines. When you come to weekend worship like this, what do we do? Uh, We sing praises to God. We pray. We confess our sins. We study God's word. We we baptize people. We celebrate communion. We bless each other. We do all of these sorts of things. Those are forming you in particular ways. When you go to a community group, what do you do? You, You pray. You study God's word. You share life. You encourage each other. Spiritual disciplines. When you serve... Uh, think about this. Uh, we, we serve because we love the people around us, but another reason we serve is this. There's basically no way to become a less selfish person than by practicing the, the discipline of service. That, that's pretty much the only way to break that in your heart is to do it. And so it forms you the more you serve. Uh, getting into God's word with your family or on your own. Uh, the reason we do that is because it is a powerfully transformative discipline. And because of that, because we know that, we try to make these activities engaging and relational as much as possible. That's what we do as a church. But here's the tricky part. 
We can make them as engaging and relational as we can, but only you can make them repetitive, okay? Uh, so think about it this way. Uh, if you took piano lessons and you only went for one lesson, you are never gonna play Beethoven, okay? Uh, if you take piano lessons, you say, you know what, I'll go like every five or six weeks to my lesson. You're probably not gonna grow that fast as a musician. The same is true with these sorts of things. If you really want them to have an effect, uh, they are not gonna change your life in one time, unless that is the first time of many. That's how it works. Uh, so uh, if you want to have these uh, things uh, be what form you over the course of 2017, make a commitment to making them daily, weekly, regular routines. As an aside uh, about the Bible Savvy reading plan, uh, if you've been reading along, you know that we are in Exodus right now, which is really, really exciting. Uh, we have read about the burning bush and Moses is going to confront Pharaoh and there's the plagues and we're about to get to the Red Sea. It's like the stuff you'd make a movie out of, you know? but we're actually gonna keep reading past the closing credits, okay? Uh, here's the thing. Uh, Charlton Heston, he goes up on the mountain, he gets the 10 commandments, credits roll. There's another 20 chapters of Exodus to go. And it's weird, okay? I'm just gonna give you a heads up. I'm gonna be honest, it's weird. Um, and we know it's gonna be challenging, but we wanna help you with that. Uh, so here's one of the things we're gonna do to try to help with that. Uh, we are actually gonna be offering a six weeks course uh, on how to read the Pentateuch. Uh, the Pentateuch are the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's what we're covering in our Old Testament readings this year. Uh, and really, these are some of the key books in the Old Testament uh, that once you understand them, even the weird parts, it kind of unlocks the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, they're foundational books. Uh, so I'm actually gonna be teaching this course. Uh, it's gonna start not this Thursday, but next Thursday. And uh, we're going to go for six weeks. It's free, but you do need to register online so that I know how many people are coming. Uh, and I love to do Old Testament stuff. I love to make it come alive for people. I love to help people understand it because uh, it's really, really rich. So I hope if that's you and you're struggling with this sort of thing, uh, I'd love to see you there and, and help you out with that. Back to verse two, though. Back to verse two. Uh, Paul says this, uh, when we are transformed, uh, it makes us able to test and approve what God's will is. As we are formed, what happens is we start to see the world more and more from God's perspective. And it becomes more and more clear to us the things that God would want us to do in a situation. It's kind of like uh, those dogs that the police use to sniff out bombs or, or drugs. Uh, those dogs, they're getting bombarded all the time with millions of different smells, but they have been trained over time to pick out just a, a few chemicals that they know that's where I need to go. That's the path that I need to follow. As we become more like Jesus, that's the same thing. Uh, we start to get acclimated to the aroma of God's will, and it becomes more natural to say, I think that's the way we should go in this situation. That's what Paul is talking about. And it's the reason why we've got to make wise choices about what forms us, so that we can make wise choices about other things. Okay, there is one more decision I want to tell you about. And this is actually the, the decision that matters more than any other decision in your life, the one that will make or break your life the most. And the good thing is that this is actually not a decision that you make. It is God's decision to offer you mercy. It's God's decision to offer us mercy. Look back at verse 1. There is a phrase that's really easy to miss, but it's so important. It says, in view of God's mercy. The order here matters a lot. You've got to remember that before Paul says, offer yourself or be transformed, he has spent 11 chapters talking about what God has already done for us. God has already become human in Jesus. 
Uh, He has already offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Uh, He has already uh, been raised from the dead and conquered death. He has already forgiven us. He has already adopted us. He has already given us new life. He's done all of these things already. And and he's done them for free. He he doesn't make us earn it. He, He doesn't check our record to see if we qualify. He doesn't make us work off our debt. This is what is meant by the word mercy. It is God's kindness to people who do not deserve it, people like you and me. And the important thing is this, God's mercy comes first. It is after that that Paul says, offer yourself and be transformed. What God does comes first and what we do comes second. But we often get this in reverse. We think that we've got to be transformed in our lives in order for God to be merciful to us. We, we think we've got to offer ourselves. We've got to give sacrifices to God in order to earn God's kindness. But it's backwards. And, and getting it backwards is actually a matter of life and death. If we think that we've got to earn God's love, it will crush us. It will dominate us. But if we know that God has already been good to us in Jesus, it will free us. Uh, this is part of what makes decision-making so stressful. Th- those big decisions, they, they scare us because we feel like something really important is at stake. Something that we absolutely need in our lives is at risk here. You know, if I make the wrong choice, will I be provided for in the future? Will I be rejected? Will will I have love? Will I lose my status? And we worry about this. But if God has already shown us mercy, then all of those things are secured. We have been provided for eternally. We have been accepted unconditionally. We have been given the highest possible status, that of daughters and sons of God. On and on, everything we need has already been given to us for free and it cannot be taken away. It cannot be threatened because Jesus is the one who secures it. And what that means is when we face big, difficult decisions and there's a lot at stake, we know that our ultimate needs are never threatened. It's so freeing. We can step out in joy and freedom, not in fear because we know that our decisions aren't the ultimate ones. They matter, but they are not the ultimate ones. God's decision to show us mercy is. This is also the reason we can offer ourselves as a sacrifice to God, because Jesus has already offered himself as a sacrifice for us. But here's the question. Do you live in light of God's mercy? Uh, There are some of you who have never, ever responded to that and accepted that. You've never stopped and said, you know what? I I can't do this on my own. I, I I, I do not deserve this. I cannot earn this. I need help. I've gone my own way long enough. God, I need you to be merciful to me. You've never done that in your life. I I can't think of a better New Year's resolution than to do that for 2017 to say, this is the year I surrender to Jesus. I'm his, I'm I'm, I'm all in with him. If you wanna do that, I'm gonna pray in just a minute and I'm gonna pray a prayer uh, that's gonna express that. If you wanna pray along with me, uh, this would be a great, great way to start the year. There are others of you who you say, you know what, I, I have experienced God's mercy like that. But here's the question for you. How are you going to let that experience shape you over the course of this next year? Because that's really the most important thing that you want to to shape you over and over again, the grace and the kindness and the love of God. Because that, getting that deep inside you, is what will actually make you like Jesus. Uh, We're going to sing one final song here. I think it's a great song to end our series with. It goes, take my life and let it be all for you, all for your glory. Uh, As we sing that, we're going to be collecting our tithes and our offerings. And the reason we do this every single week, just so you know, is because that's actually one of those spiritual disciplines. Uh, If you want to be a generous person, if you want to be free from the love of money, uh, the best thing you can do is to give regularly. So we're going to do that. We're going to sing. We're going to give. 
But first, we're going to pray. So let's pray together. If you're one of those people who wants to surrender to Jesus here at the start of a new year, I'm going to pray a simple prayer. It's just going to go like this. I'm sorry, thank you, and please. And you can pray along with me. We say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry because I have sinned. I have done what is wrong. I've gone my own way instead of your way. I have rejected you. I'm sorry. We say, thank you. Thank you, God, that you have made a way of salvation. Thank you that you sent Jesus to die for my sins so that I could be forgiven. Thank you that Jesus rose from the dead so that I could have new life. And God, we say, please, please forgive me. Please cleanse me from my sin. Please give me a new heart. Please come into my life. I surrender to you. Please be the king and the savior of my life. I am yours. Rescue me. God, all of us, no matter who we are, we want to say that. We are sorry for the things we've done. Thank you for offering us mercy. And please, God, forgive us and make us more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.